Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 5, verse number 27. Luke 5, 27. Looking forward to reading some very interesting stories in the, the life of Jesus today. And so we're taking our journey along with Christ in his earthly ministry, aren't we? And as we go day by day, we see that uh, he, he's got this overwhelming popularity. And the popularity seems to be driven by his teaching, but also by the fact that he performs miracles, exorcisms, healings, and that, that sort of thing. Last week we were introduced, though, or two weeks ago, I should say, to the beginning of controversy. Up until two weeks ago, we had not seen any kind of controversy, but Jesus began raising the ire of the religious leaders. Luke, beginning at that story and continuing, Luke gives us five controversy stories to highlight the growing antagonism by the people who would have him crucified. And today we're going to see episodes two and three and weaved into these accounts, these accounts of the controversy is of Jesus and teaching on the nature of our salvation and how different the gospel is from the law or in any other kind of works-based religion. So if you'll stand with me, we'll read verses 27 to 39 together. And it says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and, and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says... The old is good. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these uh, scenes from the life of Jesus here on earth. I pray that our hearts will be warmed, that our hearts will be humbled, that our hearts will be drawn to Jesus Christ, that we'll have greater understanding and appreciation of our salvation. And Lord, we will uh, put away those things that, that uh, hinder us from following Jesus as we should. In Christ's name, amen. So I, I want to tell you two important truths about the gospel today. And the first one is the gospel is a call to follow Jesus. 
And we'll see what we mean when I get into this, but basically there are not two levels of Christians because sometimes people have this idea that there are Christians and then there are disciples and the disciples are way up here and uh, sometime along the way, those who are super Christians are walking along and all of a sudden lightning strikes or something like that and they go to a whole new level of following Jesus and you could call them committed disciples. That is not the case. The case is that everyone is called to follow Jesus who is a believer. Secondly, the gospel, the second thing that we're going to learn is that the gospel cannot be mixed. It can't be mixed with law. It can't be mixed with tradition. It can't be mixed with politics. It can't be mixed with social issues. As soon as you do that, the gospel has been voided. And so let's talk about the gospel being a call to follow Jesus. Here we have the second controversy story, and Jesus is calling Levi to follow him. Now, Levi was his given name, but we all know him as what? We know him as Matthew, don't we? And I want, to, I want us to note five common characteristics about the gospel call illustrated in this verse. And the first one is that there is some divine initiative. The, the, the text says, verse number 27, says that he went out and he saw Levi. Now, when we read that, we, we'll read it real fast. And I don't want you to think of this as the way that we sometimes tell stories. For example, I could tell you a story today and say, you know, it's a beautiful, sunshiny morning. I'm driving to church this morning. I look over and I see a unicorn riding a bicycle. You know, that, that's, that's seen. But that's, that's not what is talking about here. The context indicates that Jesus is intentional. When, when it says he saw Levi, the word means to take note of. Jesus is in probably Capernaum. And he takes note of Levi. Another way of translating it, if you have a King James, many times it'll say, fixed his gaze on Levi. In other words, there are hundreds, possibly thousands of people around Jesus. And of all those people, he fixes his gaze on Levi. It was no accident that he selected Levi. It was a divine appointment. And salvation is always by divine initiative, isn't it? Now, Rome, Levi was a tax collector. In Rome, they farmed out the taxing rights to the highest bidder. They would open up contracts, and people would bid for it. And You, you didn't have to be Roman. You could be Jewish or, or anything else, and you just bid on it. And, and Rome assigned a levels of revenue to different regions within the empire. And so the person who won the contract sent those taxes to the Roman government, but they were able to keep whatever they got above that amount. And, of course, you can imagine what that meant, right? Knowing human nature. Uh, <clears throat> the tax collectors were heartily disliked both as collaborators with Rome and extortioners of the Jewish people. As a class, tax collectors were regarded as uh, dishonest. The, the Talmud uh, classes them as robbers. The, they were not allowed into synagogues. Why were they not allowed in synagogues? 
because they were, they were unclean. They were classified with unclean animals in ceremonial law. They were classified with Gentiles. Gentiles weren't allowed in. Tax collectors, even if they were Jewish, were not allowed in. They, they couldn't come into the synagogue. They would desecrate the whole facility and they'd have to ceremonially clean the whole facility. They, they weren't allowed into a synagogue. They weren't allowed to give testimony in a law of court. Why? They were liars. If the tax bill was $5, they would look at you and say, you owe $7 to Rome. And they'd pocket the $2. Everybody knew that they were liars. So they couldn't give a, a testimony in a court of law. Now, there were, there were two broad types of tax collectors in Palestine at this time. And Levi happened to be a lower-level tax collector. He was, he was in a tax booth. The, the word indicates that he was a lower-level tax collector. He would have reported to someone else, a higher-level guy, probably somebody like Zacchaeus. You know Zacchaeus? He was, he was a high-level tax collector. Chief, he, remember, he was a chief tax collector. That's what we know him as. In fact, if you think about Levi, think about this for just a minute. He was in the lowest class of people, wasn't he? In Jewish society, lowest level of Jew, not only that, he was the lowest of the lowest level of Jew because he was the lowest tax collector. This guy, this guy was a lowlife of lowlifes. And, and um, one commentator said about him, said that Levi was, was uh, sinfully rich and socially ostracized. And this is who Jesus fixed his gaze upon. And while Jewish people hated him and wanted him to disappear, Jesus took note of him and look at what happened next. Next words. What happened next was a shock to everyone. Jesus said to Levi, follow me. Follow me. Now, what we need to remember is that everyone around Levi is looking on the outside. They see a guy, they know he's a liar, they know he's crooked, they, they know he's a tax collector, he's a traitor to the Jewish nation, he's an unclean person. As far as they are concerned, as far as they are concerned, he is unredeemable. I don't know how many of you read my email on, on Friday, but I told you a little story about uh, the type of person that we often view as unredeemable, don't we? And, and, and so he was an unredeemable person. But Jesus can see the heart. And evidently, he saw a heart of repentance out of this man. I, I am certain that Matthew heard all about Jesus. And most likely, Matthew heard his teaching. And he knew, he saw Jesus heal people. And he saw pe Jesus cast out demons and, and he knew enough to know that this is what the Messiah was going to do. And then he heard Jesus claim to be the Messiah. And he heard his teaching. And he, he heard Jesus claim to forgive sinners. And guess what Matthew or Levi was feeling? He was feeling the weight of his sin. I can remember the weight of my sin before I got saved. Can't you? Some of you can, some of you can't. Some of you grew up in a Christian tradition, 
and you heard about sin and you just naturally wanted to follow Jesus and your faith took root and, and bloomed that way. Others of us, we can name a day and time when that weight was lifted, but praise God, the weight of our sin is lifted, isn't it? And that's what happened to Levi. Seeing his heart, Jesus called to Levi, follow me, follow me. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. Didn't they call him rabbi? They did. And as with the case of other rabbis in the ancient world, he would, he would move about the countryside. And his, his group of students would follow the rabbi wherever he went. And so, as Jesus walked through the, on a street or through a community, the disciples would walk along beside and behind him, committing to memory the words that he uttered. Sometimes, from what they tell us, the disciples would walk in front of the master so that they could hear his voice as they, they knew where they were going and they would listen to him and he would walk behind them and teach them. Kind of reminds you of the book of Isaiah where he talks about you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. You've heard the verse, right? And, and this is what the rabbi is doing. And so they're committing to memory his words, but it's more than that. The disciple was a person who joined himself with the company of the rabbi. They, they slept in the same buildings. They went to the same towns. He would, he would commit to mastering whatever it was that the rabbi would transmit to him by way of teaching. And when it was all said and done, the disciple had become like his master. We're called to be disciples, aren't we? Where was it in Antioch where it was for the first time uh, believers were called what? They're called Christians, Christ-like, little Christ. And we are called to become like our teacher and, and our, our, our master, the one who bought us. And Levi was called to follow Jesus. And when all said and done, Jesus wanted this tax collector to become just like him. And that's the call of every one of us, to become just like Jesus Christ. And so this expression, follow me, is not used here to describe uh, the deeper Christian commitment to Jesus. In other words, entering some second level of discipleship, ooh, one day I hope I'm like that guy, right? That's not what it's talking about at all. Rather, it's the commitment to become a Christian. And this is clear. Look at verse number 32. It's very clear. Here's uh, what he says about his call. And remember, Jesus called to him, follow me. And he says in verse number 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. A repentant way of life is the way every single one of us are called to live. And so let's talk about repentance because repent is exactly what Levi did. Levi left everything. Now, I don't know how much money was at that tax booth at that time. I don't. But the Bible says that he got up from his tax booth and just took off. Right? He, just, he left everything and followed Jesus. And this shows his repentance. Think about how risky this was for Levi. It was more risky for him than for others of the disciples. For example, if it didn't work out for Peter, James, and John, what could they do? 
They go back to the fishing business. And it was no difficulty at all for them. But what about Levi? When Levi walked out of his job, he was through. They would never take back a man who abandoned his tax office. And so his following Jesus was a final commitment. It was a full commitment. It was a full-on commitment to following Jesus Christ. And that's what repentance is. This is a call to every Christian. Christ calls all of us to a radical commitment to him. The transformation was so great that this man, Levi, became known as Matthew. Do you know what the word Matthew means? It means gift of God. A gift of God. Levi had more to lose than most people, but like the other disciples, he left it all behind. Now, what was he leaving behind? Is is the gospel a call for you just to leave your job and live in poverty? It's not. The call was to leave give up the sinful structures that led to his financial advantage. Once he left, he could never go back. What repentance requires is a definitive break from your old life. A definitive break from your old life of sin, no matter what the cost. We must let go of everything that stands in the way of going with Jesus. And when you, when you trust Christ... If you can remember the day and the time, I would imagine that immediately your attitude changed. Immediately the things that you cherished were not so cherished anymore, were they? You had a new set of priorities. Something else took center of your attention. You focused on, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's what repentance requires. It's to put away everything socially and whatever else that we have, that we hold dear, that gets in the way of us and Jesus and to follow him. There's, there's a, there are two more things that happen with uh, a call to follow Jesus, and that is worship and evangelism. Look at the next verse here. See, it says, and Levi made a, what kind of feast? A little feast? A great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Levi had so much joy that he threw a party. He threw a party. And Jesus was the honored guest. You know what this is? This is worship, isn't it? This is celebrating Jesus Christ. He threw a giant party. It says a great feast. Tax collectors and and other sinners are there. And you know what else we learned from the text? Now, this is deep down in the text, but you've got to understand this. This is very important for you. Pharisees aren't very good at parties. You know why? They weren't invited. The Pharisees are just downers. Pharisee comes to your party, the party's done, right? Now, in, in reality... Here's here's a question. Why was the party full of tax collectors and sinners? Very easy answer, isn't it? That's all he knew. That's all he knew. He threw a party full of tax collectors and sinners, the only people he knew, and he wanted to throw a big banquet 
with, for Jesus, complete with food and wine, and he invited the only people he knew, and so the place was full of riffraff. Right? Riffraff. Now, this is interesting. In Judy, and um, David Moon mentioned it last week. He didn't mention it this way, but this is what he was talking about. In Judaism, table fellowship, these great banquets that they were having, table fellowship means fellowship before God. It means fellowship before God. Last week, David mentioned that the Lord's Supper is a meal with Jesus. And here we have in this text a literal meal with Jesus. And Levi wanted to invite all his friends to hear Jesus. He wanted all his friends to come to Jesus, didn't he? And so he invited them to hear Jesus and hear him teach. And now we come to the climactic portion of the passage. Everybody read this with me together. Verse number 30. This is the climax. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And there it is right there. That's the climax. That's the, that's the mission statement of his ministry. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's one of the great mission statements that he makes. He announces who he is and what he's come to do. He explains the purpose for which he left the splendors of heaven and came down to earth. He didn't come to save the righteous. We could stick a word in front of that. Self. Self-righteous. He did not come to spend time with people who had it all together. Rather, he came to save the people who really needed him. Messed up, broken down, law-breaking sinners. And isn't it fascinating to you, because it is to me, how often that the people who respond to, to the salvation call are the people whose lives are a wreck. Because people who have it all together need nothing, they think. They're relying upon their talents, their abilities, which gets them their riches, their social positions and their political positions and the success and all that. And they don't need anything because they have it all. And so the gospel call falls on deaf ears just like it did these Pharisees and scribes. But rather... The people, I, I had a phone call the other day from someone, uh, someone from my past, and we did, had some small talk, and I said, what's up? And he said, I have a nagging question. He said, why am I the way I am? Why is my life so messed up? Right? And those are the kind of people that Jesus came to knowing that their life is a wreck. Now, I'm not saying, please don't walk out here saying that I'm saying that nobody who has it all together will ever get saved. That's not true. What I'm saying is you have to recognize what's going on on the inside, right? In order to get saved. To explain his mission, Jesus used a simple illustration from the field of medicine. He said he was a doctor. His, his point was, that if you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. Have you ever seen the movie, What About Bob? 
Bob's a hypochondriac. He's always going to the doctor about something. But normally, uh, this is now, I don't know how true this is, but doctors tell me that when there is a man who comes in his office, say he's like in his 30s or 40s, and he's perfectly physical fit, and he has no ailment, but the guy goes to see him for an appointment, you know what he knows? The wife sent him. Because there's nothing wrong with the guy, okay? She just wants to make sure that there's nothing wrong with the guy. But anyway, um, this, this fact that he mentions that he was a, a, a doctor of sorts would have had special significance for Luke, wouldn't it? Because Luke was a doctor. He was a medical man himself. And Jesus' point was that if you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. The only people who need treatment are those who have something wrong with them. And Jesus... Don't miss this. Jesus offers us the same treatment. But in order to receive it, we must accept his diagnosis. As long as we keep insisting that we are righteous, we will never see our need for a gospel cure. And that's the problem with the Pharisees. They divided the world into two kinds of people. The righteous and the sinners Guess what group they belong to? They didn't think they were sinners. And so if Jesus came to save sinners, they didn't need his salvation. And of course we know, right, that we all need Jesus because Romans says there's none righteous, no, not one. So when Jesus talked about the righteous, he was speaking an irony, wasn't he? The righteous was the self-righteous. He's talking about people who thought they were righteous. Now, if no one's righteous, then we all need a Savior. And when Jesus calls sinners to repentance, he's calling every single one of us. My question to you is, have you responded to the call of Jesus? Have you responded to the call of Jesus? Well, we roll into something else, some other parables here. And this is the third controversy story. And we'll learn here that the gospel can't be mixed with anything. The gospel can't be mixed with anything. Now there's a complaint. Look at the next verses. Now there's a complaint of the Pharisees, and this is what they said. And they said to him, talking to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees But yours eat and drink. That's an indictment. That's an indictment. First, they criticize Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. Then they criticize him for eating and drinking at all. And later in Luke, they use it as their their basis to call him a drunkard. Later on in Luke, Luke chapter 7, verse number 34 the son of Jesus said, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so here are these Pharisees. And you know what their problem is? They're upset. He's tossing their apple cart over. They are upset with him. But they're not just upset with Jesus. They're upset with John the Baptist. They don't like him any better. But here, they were able to use John's disciples favorably 
in turn try to turn Jesus and John against one another. You know what they're doing? They're trying to separate them, turn one against the other. And Jesus' response to their fa- uh, criticism is fascinating. Look at what Jesus said. I love this analogy. He said, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, now what's going on here? What, these, these ancient weddings lasted a long time. And we don't know exactly how they work, but some weddings were as long as seven days. I don't think that means that you were seven full days in a big party, but there were, there were things going on for sometimes as long as seven days. And when the bridegroom came and grabbed his bride, there was eating and drinking, there was dancing, there was music, and there was joy. It's a joyous occasion. And so Jesus here never says that there's anything wrong with fasting, but he made it clear that right now, while he is here, this is not the time for fasting. Now why? Why was it not the time for fasting? The answer, he, the bridegroom, is with them. He, the bridegroom, is with them. Now, this is an extremely important analogy that we miss sometimes. All through Scripture is the bridegroom imagery used for God's people. Did you know that? All through Scripture. Jeremiah uh, chapter number 2, God recounts, uh, You loved as a bride and followed me in the wilderness. He's calling Israel, his covenant community, the, the, the Old Testament community, his bride. And they're following him in the wilderness. Hosea paints the, the same picture. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is bridal imagery, talking about the people of God. And so at, his bank, at this banquet with Levi, Jesus compares to a wedding banquet. And you know what it is? It's the foretaste of eternal joy. Now, do you think it was fun at this party? Of course it was. It was fun. We can have fun, right? <laughs> um, I got to say it. It has nothing to do with my sermon, but it just popped into my mind. We, uh, in high school, we had a... Um, Believe it or not, I was in choir. Don't ask me to sing, but I was in choir. Main reason I was in choir is because we took these tours around the United States. And um, we had this really fun choir director. He, he went to a different place, and we got a new choir director. And he was, all, he was full of rules, you know, like the Pharisees were full of rules. And so it, it got to the point where we would um, have, we had a slogan, and it was no fun allowed. No fun allowed on these choir tours. And, and uh, sometimes I get the feeling that a lot of Christians think that no fun is allowed with Jesus Christ. But this banquet, this wedding banquet imagery is a foretaste of eternal joy that will be experienced by all who know Him as a Savior. And if you have ever been to a wedding where it's just a joyous occasion, 
and people are laughing and there's good food and there's great music and there's dancing and all these other things going on. That is a foretaste of the eternal joy that we'll experience moment by moment by moment in eternity. Won't that be great? And so Jesus says it in in Matthew 22. He has the parable of the wedding feast, doesn't he? And we are the ones going to the eternal wedding feast. Paul likens the church to the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We are the bride. God gave the church to Jesus Christ as a bride. And do you know when the church was given to Jesus? This is so important. Before the world began. You were given to the bridegroom before God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says. Before time began, we were given as a gift to the bridegroom. Isn't that wonderful imagery? And forever and ever and ever we will celebrate. Well, that's all well and good until you get to verse number 35. Look at verse number 35. This is, this is sometimes a hard one to interpret because there's something ominous here. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Now, what is, what is being said here? Well, there are a, a couple different interpretations, but really, the, my interpretation hinges upon the word taken away. It says the bridegroom is taken away. The word here indicates taken away by force. Taken away by force. This is a prediction of the crucifixion. And I promise you that when Jesus was crucified and laid in the grave, I am quite certain that those disciples were fasting and praying, weren't they? And they were fasting and praying, the Bible says, until what time? Until the Holy Spirit came. Remember, they were in the upper room praying when the Holy Spirit came. And so this is what he is talking about. He is saying that I will be taken away by force and there will be a fast in those days. And then Jesus gives three quick parables to explain how the gospel of the new covenant is different from the old. The first two basically say the same thing. Look at verse 36. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. All right, so what is he talking about here? Well, first, in the form of clothing, a piece of cloth, if you think about it, new cloth has not been shrunk. And so if you rip a piece off a new garment, which ruins that new garment, doesn't it? You stick it on the old garment, and you wash it, and it shrinks. What happens to the old garment? It ruins it. And so what do you have? You have a ruined new garment, and you have a new, a ruined old garment. And what Jesus is, is indicating here is that with the new covenant, um, you, can't, you can't mix and match. You can't patch up 
the old covenant with the new covenant. They're two separate things altogether. Some people, with the Jews I'm talking about, would like to try to take a little pieces of Jesus and patch him on their old way of doing things. But the gospel will not mix and match with any kind of man-made religion. The gospel, the new covenant of the gospel, ruined Judaism. And the new covenant, if you take a piece of it and try to patch it on something else, ruins the new covenant as well. Makes sense, doesn't it? Then he gives a second illustration. He talks about new wine and bursting the wineskins. Now, in Palestine, grape juice uh, ferments very quickly in the wine. It happens in weeks. As soon as you pour uh, grape juice into a wineskin, it immediately begins to ferment. And you know how fast fermentation can happen uh, uh, if, you, if you use any kind of fermented foods. For example, just on Friday, uh, we made some coconut yogurt and coconut kefir. And the kefir Saturday, so Friday night, poured into a jar. Saturday, you could see the bubbles on top where it was already fermenting. Only took uh, 36 hours. It's fermented and, and into kefir. It happens very quickly in Palestine, too. This is not something that happens very slowly. And so um, the fermentation process, what happens to it? I mentioned it. It releases gas. We see it in the form of bubbles. And it releases gas. This, this new grape juice is always put into animal skins that are new because they're elastic and will expand as the gas expands via fermentation. However, over time, these animal skins become brittle. And so if you put new juice in old brittle wineskins, it will break the wineskin. And the same is true of the gospel. The new covenant is not merely an improved old covenant, it is an entirely different covenant. As such, it will destroy the old. That is why Jeremiah calls it what? The new covenant. The new covenant. You can't put the gospel into Judaism. You can't put it into any other religious system. You can't drop it into some legalistic system. You can't drop it into some works religion legalistic Orthodox religion. For ex well, I won't give any examples. You know I'm talking about legalistic religions, right? You can't drop it into liberalism. You can't drop it into a cult. There's a dramatic difference in the gospel. It is new wine. It can't be mixed with the old. It can't be contained in the old or, or uh, in the old or by the old. Any placing of Christianity into any works righteousness system and you make it void. And what will happen is it will crack and the gospel's lost. The gospel's lost. Today, there's a push to make everything a gospel issue. Some people will say social justice, homelessness, poverty, racism these are gospel issues have you ever heard that this is a gospel issue it's not a gospel issue it's an issue that we address as a result of the gospel but it's not a gospel issue when they do that when, when people say these things are gospel issues 
they modified the emphasis of their presentations and, and the applications of it. And once this occurs, they are no longer offering the gospel. They're offering a social solution of some sort. But on the other side, there are others who make politics and these sort of things major implications of the gospel. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, if they are intermixed, the gospel becomes void and loses its power. You can't mix the two. It's getting kind of quiet in here. But it's true. You, you stick with the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and let it do its work. One final illustration. We're going to have to finish. One final illustration, verse number 39. This one, a lot of people look at this and think, what is he saying here? And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. You know what's going on? The rabbis used to call the law in Judaism the old wine. And they would talk about how good the old wine tastes. The old wine, it's so good. It's, it's aged and it's, it's just so tasty, right? They love the rules. They love the teachings, the distortions of God's laws. And Jesus looks directly at the Pharisees and he says to them, they have been drinking the old wine of Judaism so long that they have no taste for the new. And we see this. People who have been in a certain religion for a very long time, maybe some sort of works righteousness religion, they're very comfortable. They, they cultivate their, their taste for their tradition. They, they cultivate their taste for that experience. And those who have cultivated deeply the love of their traditional religion, they have no interest in the gospel, do they? Haven't you found that to be uh, so? That's, that's where some of the unsaved are today. There's, there's no mixing. For those who aren't willing to come out of their false religions to the gospel, there's no hope. They aren't about to sell everything and buy the treasure in the field. They're not, they're not about to sell everything and buy the pearl a great price. No, they're very comfortable in their religion, whatever that religion happens to be. Other people, they try to take Jesus and try to patch him on. You know what I'm saying? They, they, he's a patch. Jesus is going to fix my life. He's going to fix my marriage. He's going to fix my bad habits. He's going to fix my job. Or they try to bottle him up. And other people just flat out try to refuse. They, they refuse to try him at all. And so an explanation of the hearts of man. Jesus did such a wonderful job of explaining the heart of man, didn't he? It's so clear and so easy to see. That helps you to understand when you present the gospel what you're working up against. You have a family member who's in the middle of a workspace religion. One of the things you're battling against is their comfort in the religion that they're in. They know that they're going to have to get rid of everything in their life in order to follow Jesus. And until the call comes from Jesus, follow me, 
they're not going to do it. But dear believer, you heard his call and you followed his call and one day you're going to be at the wedding banquet where there is joy forevermore. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you called us. Of all the people in the world, you set your gaze on us called us into your wedding banquet. We thank you, Lord, that the call to repentance is a call to follow the one who paid the price for our sin but rewards us in much greater ways than any earthly system or thing can reward us. I pray that you'll help us to be encouraged as we follow you, as our culture uh, keeps turning darker and darker and more against the gospel, that we, our joy will increase knowing that we're children of God. In his name we pray, amen.